This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry. And I'm Anthony Johnston. And today we are talking about a White Zombie's final album, final real album, Astro Creep 2000. Or, to give it its full title, Astro Creep 2000 Songs of Love, Destruction, and Other Synthetic Delusions of the Electric Head. <laughs> or, as I like to call it, the one White Zombie album that I truly remember. Uh, well, and I was going to ask you about that, right? So, I mean, obviously, we'll get more into this in more detail. But I would like, obviously, you'd heard the hits. Everybody's heard more human than For human sure. and tracks like. But had you actually listened to the the whole album before? Well, I should have said this was the one White Zombie album that I owned, and ah, so right. you know, I had heard Thunder Kiss when it was being aired on MTV, which is from the album before this, and you know, knew of them. And so when this album came out and they started playing more human than human. So I did end up picking this album up and I, you know, just spoiler alert right up front. I do like this album from pretty much top to bottom. And so it was the one white zombie album that I had in my collection. And then I did have a lot of Rob zombie stuff when he, you know, started doing his own stuff. I had a lot of that as well. And um, the only time I've seen them live, uh, it was Rob Zombie and not White Zombie. So I kind of missed out on their early days. I had grabbed this album, and then once they started, uh, once he started doing his solo thing, that's where the bulk of my Rob Zombie, you know, experience was found. Right. Well, and I think that's true for an awful lot of people. Uh, I got into them on the previous album, like many people I saw, Thunderkiss. 65 on Beavis and Butthead thought, hey, that's interesting. Went out and got Les Six Assisto, the previous album, and, th- yeah, and then bought like a live bootleg and stuff like you know, and got into them that way. And then, so I was really heavily anticipating this album even before the singles. Um, but there are a lot of people who got into them with this album, which of course is the tragedy that then they immediately split up afterwards. Uh, but who've then, you know, obviously because this album is the one that sounds most like Zombies, Rob Zombie's solo stuff, then went on to be fans of his solo material. Um, whereas I'm actually not that big a fan of his solo stuff, to be honest with you. I, again, we'll talk about that later, actually. Let, let's save that for, for sure. later. But I'm glad to know that you did, that you had heard the album before, that it wasn't a complete surprise to you, because I actually wasn't sure about that. No, when you said that, the, that we were going to be talking about this one, I was excited. If I was going to pick a White Zombie album, it would be this one, because I think in having gone back and checked out a lot of their other stuff and having listened to most of Rob Zombie's stuff, like I feel this is the most complete yeah. album that they've put together. So I, I, yeah. I, I'm, you know, hits aside, I'm glad this is the one that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, no argument there. Uh, so let's... Uh, before we get on to uh, social media and what have you, uh, we have two new patrons uh, since the last episode, Tim Medcalf and Robert Angelillo, uh, who also wrote in with a very nice email. Thank you, Robert, for that. Oh, yes. Um, and, or no, 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 and we also then had a very, very long email from new listener, John Mason, yep. uh, which I know you replied to. I, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it was rather long, but I will just say, John, thank you for writing in. Uh, Brian and I both read it with great interest and it was great to read how much you're enjoying the show. Um, we do love, I mean, much as we love the Facebook group and everything, it is nice to get emails from people because it feels like email takes a bit more thought and effort, uh, these days. So it's kind of replaced snail mail in terms of, you know, that's what, uh, that's what you do when you want to sit down and actually compose a letter to somebody. So, you know, if anybody else feels the, feels moved to email us, please do. We do appreciate it and we do read them all. It's very nice. 
Yep, we definitely read them all and uh, and also reply. And as you said, I think when someone takes the time to email in, it's usually because something really struck a chord with them, and they there's some connection made there. And and ninety nine point nine percent of the time, super positive, right? So it's like, yeah. oh, I heard this episode and it made me think of this thing, and I can't believe you guys talked about this or whatever. So. It's really uh, awesome. But as always, over on our Facebook page in uh, response to our ACDC episode, which was the last episode of the show, there was almost 100 comments on this episode of the show. Uh, And for the most part, I think everybody was pretty on board with this uh, being a band that they wanted to hear about. Uh, There were a couple people that just weren't fans of ACDC, but for the most part, uh, this was an important record for people. So I'll just read some of the stuff. Joe said, this is one of the first records I bought with my own money. I had first started listening to uh, more of the rock station in Cincinnati, uh, and they loved ACDC. And uh, I really liked the song, which didn't play as much, so I bought the album. And that is Touch Too Much. And the thing that I thought was super cool about that is Touch Too Much is my favorite song. Uh, I just absolutely love that song. And and that was one that didn't resonate, if I remember correctly, as much with you. But for me, it was was definitely one of those songs. And as we talked about, sort of the, the Def Leppard connection for... Uh, for their music sort of overlapping. Uh, Phil said, my favorite and first album from my favorite band from 1979 to 1982. Phil gets very specific about like, <laughs> like <Yeah>. his favorite <laughs> band from 1979 to 1982. I don't have my favorite bands categorized by year, but maybe I should do that. Cause I'm sure there's been some <laughs> changes over time. Uh, I did recently say that I think that uh, ghost may be my favorite band of the past like decade and a half so right that's but that's um, not quite the same as saying my favorite band of 2015 <laughs> right because you know by 1980 you know early 1983 phil had moved on apparently so he said uh i'll never forget the day i found out that bond scott died i was in the fourth grade and my best friend and i were just devastated i think we just sat on the bench at our first recess we thought the band was over we couldn't imagine acdc without bond Listening to this over the last week has been pure nostalgic pleasure. And that was kind of a theme that came up a lot, too, is people, like, really happy to kind of go back and revisit, and it brought up a lot of memories. Uh, Stuart said, so much from this episode sparks thought. First, thoroughly good discussion always helps when it's an album that's been ingrained in you for decades. Bon Scott ACDC has always been my favorite, never keen on Brian Johnson's voice, even though that was probably the first ACDC I heard but I much preferred Bon Scott's tracks I heard on Tommy Vance's rock show. Uh, And this album has always had a place near the top of my rankings from the album cover. Malcolm Angus and Bon just look so well ACDC through highway to hell, walk all over you. If you want blood, which was the name of their live album, of course. So presume there must be a link between the two uh, to night prowler, which is probably my favorite track on the album. And I was looking for you to mention the Mork and Mindy reference, so thumbs up there. So <laughs> um, yeah. just just to break in there, by the way, Tommy Vance for American listeners who don't know is I don't know what he's doing now. I assume he's probably doing a show, you know, online somewhere. But Tommy Vance for years was basically the voice of hard rock and heavy metal on British radio. Um, you know, there was a very good chance that if there was any kind of radio show about this genre, he was either presenting it or knew the person who was and was involved somehow. Um, He's kind of like, you you look back now, it's a bit like sort of, you know, looking back on things like the Norbum 
stuff. You look back now and you can think, oh, that's a bit cheesy. You know, he had a very radio voice yeah. uh, and he had the shades and the black leather jacket and all that. But at the time, you know, he, he genuinely, all of that aside, he genuinely loved the music, no question. And at the time, like I say, he was pretty much the only place you could go on national radio, you know, outside of really niche specialist areas to get somebody basically advocating for rock and metal uh, on mainstream radio and in the mainstream media. So, yeah, you know, I mean, British listeners, I'm sure, will be familiar with him. If they're not, you should go and look him up. You know, he's, uh, like I say, he, he did a lot. And he's kind of not forgotten, but a little overlooked now, I think. And, I, you know, it's uh, he did a lot for to advance the cause of metal, in the UK at least, uh, in the 1980s. Uh, Stewart also said he can confirm the resemblance between Beating Around the Bush and Oh Well, the early Fleetwood Mac song, which I think a lot of people <laughs> chimed in and uh, and also said. Yeah, yeah. Well, and we even posted the videos on the Facebook group, didn't we? Uh, and somebody was saying, like, you know, oh, they should sue, what have you, but it wouldn't. You know, yes, there's a similarity, but there's also a similarity between Oh Well and probably about 50 uh, original blues boogie songs. So... Uh, you know, I don't think there's any grounds there. Yeah, so Joe said, uh, interesting that Brian said some Bon Scott albums were not released initially in the U.S. You'd never had, have guessed that from rock radio in southern Ohio. We heard Dirty Deeds, TNT, Long Way to the Top, Jailbreak, Whole Lot of Rosie. He said all from at least the time this album onward and still today. So I think some of the music made it over. It was just the albums themselves that were not released and someone uh, in one of the emails that we received the question came up about the cover for Highway to Hell which I don't think we talked about in the episode we was rejected by the record company so the original uh, cover for Highway to Hell has flames all around that picture of the band like it's li- literally like they're in hell and uh that is why the cover even though it's an iconic cover is a little more plain in the final release because it just wasn't it wasn't something that was uh, approved at the time. So, and I believe ACDC in their anniversary discussions of this episode, because it's the 40th anniversary of this episode of this album, because it's the 40th anniversary, they have posted the original cover art on their Twitter timeline. So oh, there's, right. there's actually a lot of good stuff on that. If you don't follow the ACDC Twitter, you should check it out because they've been celebrating highway to hell all year long. And of course, with the impending news of, the reunion and the whatever songs they've put together and all the stuff that we kind of know has been happening. There's going to be a lot more coming from that Twitter account. So I would, I would check it out. Yeah. Um, I don't understand why that, I mean, I guess, you know, the time it, it's just, so, why would you reject that just cause it's got fire on it? It seems so, I mean, it does also obscure the picture of the band, which maybe that had something to do with it, you know, but, then again, I don't know. It kind of smacks of this, like, oh, you know, maybe a bit too satanic. But the the actual cover still has Angus's cartoon horns and devil tail right. that have been, you know, airbrushed on. So that's really strange. Well, and remember at the time, though, when we were talking about the fact that, uh, you know, they hadn't really broke over here yet. And so there was so much writing on this record, right, of whether or not it was going to be successful for them. And this was going to be the one that really kind of vaulted them into the mainstream and all that kind of stuff. So I'm sure there, it was just like <laughs> so much tension and tug of war over like, yeah. what is this? This is our last shot to break ACDC in the States, you know? 
Uh, let's see what else here. Uh, Mike said, walk all over you, bangs, and the slow chorus is just really dark. Comes across as an implied threat instead of a one-night stand. I think we talked about that a little bit. That you We could, did, yeah. You could kind of take that. Uh, Daniel said, I have some unpopular opinions about ACDC, and I shall address them in a civic way. It's very nice. That's that's really nice. He said, uh, but first I must listen to the episode. I'll see if I could find where he came in later. He, I think, was one of the ones that said that he just wasn't, that ACDC's music just never really clicked with uh, yeah. with him. And that's fair enough. You know, it's, uh, we, we had this actually, uh, people on the Facebook group will recall that um, one new listener was, or not new listener, but new poster, uh, was kind of uh, very disappointed by this <laughs> Uh, by that episode because i don't know you know because we didn't uh we didn't like opeth wasn't it he's a big opeth it was it Uh, was it was why do you lift these guys up i think when uh this masterpiece over here you were not as favorably inclined clearly the superior band and it's like well you know that's kind of i mean that goes with as we as we said when we started this show you know metal fans are nothing if not emphatic in their uh, particular fandoms but yeah, you know, at the same time, we like what we like and we're not going to apologize for that. And sometimes it's hard to explain why, you know, we've, there have been records on here for both of us, which we have or haven't liked unexpectedly. That's just the way it goes. Well, and me not being a trained musician, like just most of my, you know, feelings about a record are just how it resonates with me. Right. It's yeah. not even, it's not even recognizing like maybe some of the more technical elements of it. I know they're there. I maybe I don't know the, you know, specifically what, what they're doing in this particular part of a song. And so, yeah, so much of it is a, it's all subjective B so much of it for me when it comes to music is feel too. Right. So, exactly. um, well, and Art- that was the thing, as I said in the episode, that, that I did like and appreciate about the ACDC track, you know, no, it's not, as I said at the time, it's not at all complex music, but, when your music isn't complex, it has to be really well written, really well composed, uh, because otherwise it's going to be obvious, you know, for all to see. So, and that, that was kind of what I appreciated about it was the taste of it. You know, the, the, um, the judgments that went into writing those songs. Uh, Art said that something I'm surprised wasn't mentioned is that Bob Rock actually made Lars listen to either this album or back in black, or maybe both of them. So that he could, uh, so that he could learn how to be a backbone for their new direction on the Black Album, which yeah, it's I, maybe that's that, covered in the movie. I couldn't remember that. But, well, um, I only ever remember Lars mentioning Neil Peart uh, from Rush uh, yeah. around that time, and he he mentioned a few times he mentioned Peart and how you know Peart is yes, you know we all know he can do these lovely fifty minute drum solos, but for most of the time he is just the backbone of the band, and he's laying down a very very simple but absolutely spot on beat. Uh, I don't recall him mentioning ACDC at all, but it's been a long time since I saw those videos. So I don't know. Uh, Phil did chime in again and say my first ACDC concert was the who made who tour in 1986. I think I mentioned that was the, the album cover for that was the patch that I had on the back of my jean jacket throughout my high school (laughs) uh, years was the who made who one. Um, Greg Greg said, for me, Highway to Hell is a fantastic album. The weak track for me is Night Prowler, which I feel is too long. Uh, I love the slow, bluesy sleaziness of it, but 4 minutes 30 seconds would have been much better for me. 
Beating Around the Bush has the questionable borrowed riff from Fleetwood Mac, but everything else in the album is great, especially Quiff, Cliff Williams on Love Hungry Man. Oh, my God, what a bass line on that song. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, however, Back in Black to me is one of those rare things, a perfect album. I do wonder how it would have turned out had Bond lived. Would it have been better? Would it have been so different and not the album it is? Who can say? I mean, that is one of the great kind of not even debates, but great sort of thought exercises of all time, right? Is what what would Back in Black yeah. have turned out to be with Bon Scott? You know, it but, certainly wouldn't have been the tribute to Bon Scott that it ultimately was. Right. And well, and it's the same as, you know, it's the same with any band that loses, especially when literally loses to death, you know, uh, a member like that. I mean, look at Unjustice for All, you know, there's no way that Unjustice for All would have come out the way it did if not for Cliff Burton's death. So, Right. And there are many other examples of uh, bands that, yeah, you kind of think, well, what would have happened if they had carried on or if this person hadn't died or whatever? As you say, interesting thought exercises, but it's literally impossible to know. Uh, And then Dave said, this was another fun listen because I always liked ACDC, but I started to really appreciate them in recent years. Hearing you guys dissect and diagram their sound made me appreciate them even more. After I finished listening to this album for homework, I added a couple of other ACDC albums to my library as well and plan on building my own best of playlist into regular rotation. Uh, And super excited for White Zombie, he said. So uh, there are probably 80 more comments here on the Facebook thread. So, (laughs) uh, so, and we appreciate that. I mean, that it was a, it was a great uh, discussion that came out of an episode that was uh, a lot of fun to do. So if you're on Facebook and you haven't joined the Facebook group yet, again, some great discussion um people in, in addition to the album you know episode reactions so much discussion about new music that's coming out bands that if people liked this episode they should check out this band live concert you know reports that people go to like it really is that hanging out at the music shop having that discussion with your fellow metalheads uh, sort of vibe there so and we're always looking to welcome new people in so and we have i believe over 300 members now in wow. our Facebook. If I'm reading this correctly, as of this morning, 312. Wow. wow. Which is yeah. amazing. Th- that is, yeah. And for new listeners, just to remind everyone, the Facebook group address is facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. Um, and yeah, yeah, it's open to all. Go over and uh, and have a good debate (laughs) as you say about uh your favorite metal uh bands and albums you mentioned live gigs uh we wanted to talk about that you went well actually let's do mine first because yours is metal mine wasn't i as regular listeners will know don't get out to gigs anywhere near as much as you do uh but i have now been to two in two weeks as we record i was at uh both in leeds funnily enough i was at cud last weekend uh and just last night i was at the aha concert in leeds uh so neither of them metal at all um but both great and also both album playthrough gigs funnily enough oh, i love that dude and both first album playthroughs as well cud played their first album when in rome kill me uh and then took a break and then came back and played their hits and aha played their first album hunting high and low and then took a break and then came back and played they actually didn't play the hits what they did was play um one track off every album apart from the first one. Uh, that's awesome. Played, yeah, well, they actually played a couple off of their second album, which is, as far as I'm concerned, is thumbs up, because that's one of my favourite albums of theirs. Um, yeah, and they were both really good gigs, actually. And, the, the, you know, heavy on the nostalgia, sure. No question about that. But both, 
you know, great gigs, excellent performances. I will say Cud, my goodness. I mean, they're not a metal band at all. They're sort of like, you know, sort of light pop rock stuff, very quirky indie uh, music. But what a rocking gig. Like the whole place was moving. It was, uh, yeah, quite extraordinary, actually. And they sounded great in some time, honestly, some songs, whisper it, they sounded better than Aha. And, Which you is know, they're in the back a of a pub. <laughs> yeah, there's like four guys in the back of a pub. Aha, are like you know them three plus three backing musicians sure. in this massive concert. And sometimes, honestly, the sound quality left a little bit to be desired. Um, but still had a great time because I'm such a huge fan of both bands. Um, I even had a tear in my eye at the end of the Aha gig. It was all very emotional. Um, yeah, I love yeah, that fan- man. I totally stuff. would love to see them in concert. Oh, yeah, they're, I mean, the thing is, they're not effusive, you know, they're not, because they're not a rock band. They do rock out occasionally, they have some tracks that are, you know, a little bit rocky, but they're not that sort of band, and they're not a band who've ever, like, run around the stage going, let me hear you scream, and all, you know, they're not that sort of band. So they're actually quite static on stage, but the performance and the music itself is all that's needed, you know, it speaks for itself, fantastic stuff. Yep. And then I went to see on the 21st of October, I went to see Ghost. And this was uh, the third time seeing them on this tour, but the tour has evolved a little bit. Like when they first came around, it was the Rats Across America tour. The second time oh, it, it was. still that same tour? It's the same album. Wow. Uh, the right, second right. time around, it was a pale tour named Death. And I think this time around, <laughs> it was the ultimate tour named Death. And so, um, and they played with a band called Nothing More which I had heard of, but not wasn't super familiar with. And they were very different than what Ghost brings to the table, but I thought they put on a great opening set. They had super high energy. They um, they were good. And then it was cool to see for Ghost, who, you know, they started out doing sort of theater shows. So the first two times I had seen them on this tour, it was like a, a theater house sort mm-hmm. of uh, venue, which they play perfectly too. I almost would prefer that that's the type of venues that they play in because their, their show fits just absolutely perfectly in that type of venue. And then now they're doing, you know, more stadium style, civic center they, style. They just can't, if they tried to do a theater, they'd have to play like 10 nights in every venue. It's uh, there's so many people want to go and see them now. You've, they've just got to move up, but it looked like the stage, the staging of the show has definitely grown to fill those venues. Yeah, it has grown and so it's the same kind of basic setup, but I believe the actual set itself is is much bigger and has the, obviously they have more room to move around and stuff like that. Um, the biggest difference in terms of the the stage presence was more lights and now pyro are part of the right. are part of the mix there. So I think I posted a couple of pictures where you can see sort of the flame shooting out at one point in time, like all of that stuff not present during their theater tour you know, has sort of grown. So it was, it's interesting to watch the evolution of this project, right. Of this, of this band, of their approach on stage, of the different incarnations of the, the lead singer character, whether it's Papa or Cardinal or whatever, like, and the rumor is that Cardinal Copia, who is Tobias is currently playing as the singer of this band will be replaced with the new album, you know, when that comes out. And so, uh, they played both new songs, the, the, you know, the, the new singles that they put out, which were, um, kiss the go goat and, uh, Mariana cross, I think. And they both <laughs> I of them, about kiss the dude, it's so good. It's so good. 
Um, because, you know, just the idea that they have created this, and I apologize, you can hear my, dar- my dog uh, barking at the neighbors in the background, but um, just the idea that they've now created this history of the band that spans back, you know, they've no, expanded the lore. Mythology, yeah. yeah, to basically <laughs> say like, oh, this was when Papa, you know, when Ghost was playing in the 60s and, and Papa was singing for the band and all this kind of stuff. And the fact that they just keep building it out in this sort of 70s cheesiness uh, B-horror movie vibe is like, it's as if this band and everything they do was just made for me. You know, it's just, it just fits <laughs> like uh, my tastes absolutely perfectly. And they put on a hell of a live show, man. They sound fantastic live. Uh, the keyboard players and just the, the, the first time I saw them open for Maiden, they were, it was, I think, just the core group. And so now with this tour, they've brought the keyboard players out and things like that. And so it's just, it's a bigger show. It's a fuller show. They they play all the songs that you would hope that they played. They sound fantastic. And what I really love about going to see Ghost is that they're one of those bands where people just are so overjoyed to come out and see them. Like yeah. people are dressed up in it's a costume show. now. Yeah. It's like it's like a kiss vibe, right? Like people are the you know, because they refer to their shows as rituals and stuff, like people are dressed up now, everybody's chanting along, everybody's singing along. Like it really is a, a collectively joyous experience to go see this band. And I feel like we don't have as much pageantry in metal, at least in in metal over in the States anymore, where the stuff that these guys are bringing, you know, the, the days, the, the kiss and the Alice Cooper and the King diamond and the wasp vibe and stuff like, like mm. all of that stuff to me is very plus with a good, healthy dose of like Rocky horror picture show, I think thrown in it's uh it's cheesy, but it's so, so much fun. And they were well, great. The, the last time we had that kind of resurgence of theatricality, it was bands like Slipknot. And of course that is, it is theatrical, but yep. in a very, very different, way. very different way. Yeah. And so it's just um, so, interesting to see how they've kind of captured this vibe now. And I, and I, and it's, and you go there because I think online sometimes the discourse is like, well, you know, Ghost isn't metal and they're not, you know, they're not a hardcore band or whatever. If you should have seen the Megadeth shirt, I was wearing my Megadeth shirt, Testament shirts, you know, uh, Overkill mm-hmm. shirts. Like this is a band that a lot of metalheads have found something in what they're doing to really connect with whether it's the pageantry or whether it is the for me it's all the the sort of love letters to 80s early mtv era not only rock but pop and everything else like and so it's just they're a band that brings a lot of different uh types of metal fans together and that's become one of my favorite things about seeing them in concert yeah metal adjacent um well it's and i get that term from we used to laugh about uh in the goth scene about uh bands like nick cave being goth adjacent we would say because nobody would say that nick cave is you know a goth musician or that nick cave and the bad seeds are a goth band but you go to a nick cave gig and probably fully half of that audience is goths yep you know uh, and probably more than 50% are people who may not identify as goths, but have probably got a cult, Sisters of Mercy or Fields of the Nephilim album somewhere in their collection. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Um, PJ Harvey was another one, probably because of her connection to Nick Cave. There are these bands that are just, they may not be in that genre, but they are very fondly appreciated 
by fans of that genre. And I feel like Ghost, yeah, I mean, you listen to Ghost, especially, you know, they've become less metal as time goes on, if anything. Um, You know, Ghost are very firmly now simply a rock band and quite light rock at times, but there is enough there. And the imagery helps, admittedly, that you can understand why a lot of metal fans are into them and dig that music. Yeah. And 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 when you go to a ghost show, you are entertained. And that's right. like, you know, like you're excited for sort of the spectacle of it and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, it, it was a great time. So awesome seeing them. That was like one of the last four or five shows that they were playing on this tour. My understanding is that the tour is over now. They are not touring in 2020 at all. They're going to work on the new album. And then in 2021, we get the new album. And obviously, they'll be touring quite a bit after that. So uh, so I'm guessing, that, except for maybe a festival show here or there or something like that, it's going to be, you know, uh, they've toured the heck out of this album. Yeah, take a break. I mean, that's very sensible. We know there are so many bands over the years that have done that, you know, had a huge breakout hit and then spent three years on the road and not taken a break, gone straight yep. back into the studio and then straight back out onto the road. And it's the sort of thing that kills them. It's the, you know, in fact, White Zombie, one of the reasons that they split was they had just, they spent so long on the road and they were all just dog tired of the music, of each other, of being on the road. You know, it was just too much. Did you just do the perfect segue? <laughs> Almost, but not quite, because uh, the first thing I want to do before we talk about the album per se is uh, talk about my theme for this volume oh yes finally yeah yeah finally because this is my final everybody get your scratch paper pick. out what was your guess of the yeah theme? well right and so a few people did make guesses on the facebook group or in email and stuff and a, a couple of people came close but nobody quite got it so the albums that i have chosen in this volume so far have been entombed by wolverine blues prince of the poverty line by uh, sorry wolverine blues by entombed <laughs> What am I saying? Uh, Prince of the Poverty Line by Skyclad, Chaos AD by Sepultura, Psalm 69 by Ministry, and this one, Astro Creep 2000 by Ooh, White wait, Zombie. Wait, can I, can I give my guess then? Go, go on. Is it the breakup album? Ah, uh, no. No, it's not. Okay. Uh, that was just off the top of my head. Uh, uh, yeah. No, that's not quite true of uh, all of them, but it was. it's a good... Like I say, there's a few people that have come mm-hmm. close. Okay. Um, so one obvious thing about all of these albums is that from the, they're from the 1990s. Yep. Uh, and regular listeners will know that for me, that was my sort of personal golden age of metal. Um, partly just because of my age, I was in my early twenties. That is generally acknowledged as a sort of formative period for your musical taste. Uh, and it certainly was for me, but also one of the reasons that I love that period is because of albums like this, like this white zombie album. Uh, it was a huge period. We've t- I talked about this before when we did, uh, other albums in this season uh it was a huge period for that sort of crossover experimental period in metal lots of bands doing things making sounds and trying new stuff out experimenting in ways that simply hadn't been done before in metal you heard a lot of things that you'd literally never heard before in this genre and i i love that that's my bag you can't do that now because you know that age truly is gone because you can't do that now because so much has been done ever since uh and metal is uh, you know no longer a young genre you got to remember right. that in the in the mid 90s metal was it it you know was also in its mid 20s 
it was less than 25 years from Black Sabbath to this album. Uh, it was 20, yeah, 24 years from Black Sabbath debut album to this. Um, by contrast, where we are now, metal is almost 50 years old. It is, you know, it's an established, mature genre with a generational marketplace. Um, so, yeah, you know, you're never going to recapture that period of intense experimentation just because there's so much history to it. All of that said, that's actually not relevant. <laughs> See, this is, I think this is why a lot of people, a lot of people's suggestions were, oh, they're Anthony's favorite album from the 1990s. And well, yes, they are, but that's not really a theme. So the theme is only one great album. Oh, okay. These are all bands who only made one truly great album and then either split up or just never made an album as good as that again. Uh, and it's that's simply it. And there are many other bands I could have picked for this as a result, um, but these were all bands that I intended to pick for the show at some point anyway, so I figured why not You know, have these particular ones that also are my favourites and also qualify for this theme. Um, and White Zombie is kind of the ur example of that because you have a band where each album was better than the last. You know, they improved, literally improved with every single album. Um, unless Six Assisto, the album before this, was a good album, the one with Thunderkiss 65 on it. It was a good album. It had some great tracks on it, but the album as a whole was not great. You know, it has some slow bits. It right. has some not so great songs on it, a bit of filler. And then they recorded this, and this is an almost perfect album. It is an absolutely undeniably great album. It was their most successful album, their most popular album. It's the one that they toured for three years on the back of. And then they split, um, you know, which obviously is the the tragic story of a lot of bands who reach that kind of uh, sure. peak, peak era. But yes, yeah, so that was the theme. And I fully expect to see lots of arguments uh, about that, especially from Sepultura fans probably, but suck it because Chaos AD is their only great album. Now, <laughs> let's move I on love to the it. So there's computers being flipped over now. People are unsubscribing <laughs> to the podcast. People slamming their steering yep. wheels in their cars. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Oh, that's interesting. I think that's a great theme. That actually gave me an idea for a, a future theme. But that, oh, is a, that is a great theme. The one great album. Because there are so many bands that have that one album and then they... And that's it. Like they peak and I would say a lot of bands and for, for a lot of bands, um, that's their first album. And then for other bands, it's something they build up to over a number of albums. And then they find it all comes together for a variety of reasons, which I think just underscores like how hard it is to put together that one great album, right? To have it all, the quality of the songs, the, the time, of the musical landscape, like the, we talked, we've talked about producers and how much of a, you know, huge factor that they play in this kind of stuff. The time that the album gets released, like all of the things that have to go together for that one great album to be that. And even the greatest bands in the world who might have several great albums also have several albums that aren't. And just that whole thing of like, man, for, for something to come together and become a truly top to bottom great album, a lot of things have to have to click for that to happen. 
Absolutely true. I mean, and it, it's the same for any creative endeavor. You yeah, and I yeah, know book, it's the yeah, same totally. with, yeah, with books, with authors who have a hit, you know, and they'll say, hang on, I've, I've written 10 books before this and they're all just as good, but it doesn't matter. Um, same with bands, even movies and TV shows. Games. You games, know, like, right. Yep. Yeah. You, you know, Untitled Goose Game, if that had been released five years ago, maybe not quite the same hit, but because totally. of where we are with the social the media landscape right and all now. that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the political landscape. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, as you say, it just it, it all has to kind of come together, and it certainly did for White Zombie on this album. Um, but before then, they had—I mean, they they formed I think more than ten years before this album. You know, they had been around a long time. Because um, I always used to joke that because uh, obviously Rob Zombie bears quite a resemblance, uh, or at this time did anyway, bore quite a resemblance to uh, Al Jurgensen. Uh, they both had the same kind of, you know, uh, long black dreadlocks. Oh, big yeah, his picture hats. on the front of this the, album. Yeah, exactly. Uh, totally. And I always used to joke that that was basically the look for uh, metalers who had only just made it, even though they were over thirty. Yeah, <laughs> trying to hide the fact that they weren't like young men <laughs> anymore. Um, yeah, they'd been around a long time and they formed, yeah, in New York. Everybody, well, not everybody knows, but, you know, fans know the, the core of the band was always Zombie and Sean Salt, who's the bassist. Uh, and they were also in a romantic relationship for a while. Um, they were in, I think, at least one other band before they formed White Zombie. And White Zombie started out as much more of a sort of art rock noise band. Um, you'll go and listen to their very first album, uh, which I think was make them die slowly. Um, and it's, it's very different. I know make them die slowly was their second album. Sorry. Wasn't it? What was the first one? Oh, I'm going to say, I'm going to have to check Wikipedia. This is, uh, how embarrassing. Um, so the first album was, oh, soul crusher. Yes, of course. Make them die slowly was their second album. So soul crusher, you go and listen to that. And it's almost like, sounds like Sonic youth in places uh it's very much sort of art rock noise stuff but if you are familiar with why zombies music from later you can hear you know the seeds of it even in that album which has a different guitarist uh, i think it even has a different drummer um and as i say very very different songs but you can hear the seeds of what they would become and what they were trying to do right um and yeah, uh, Rob and Sean kind of, you know, as I say, they got together, they had a shared love of horror movies, which will surprise nobody. Uh, <laughs> um, and they were just trying to make it in the New York music scene. And then it took, as I say, years, basically, for the band to re- record a few albums. They kept touring, they built up this massive live following. Um, and then, of course, got the break when they uh made the video for thunder kiss 65 and it it just hit all over mtv i'm not sure if beavis and butthead were the first to show the video but certainly they popularized it and from that point on it seemed like you couldn't watch mtv at that time without seeing that video probably once every half an hour it was just everywhere um and that led to the album that that came from less exorcisto selling more and more and more people going to the shows I remember an interview with Zombie actually at the time where he complained about the, you know, complained about it being a double-edged sword, basically, and saying like, so before we'd go to shows and everybody would just stand there and look at us. Uh, now we go to shows and everybody stands there and look at us until we play Thundercus 65 and then they all dance and right. then afterwards they stop dancing again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so which, which, when you think about it, is is 
where you can clearly see him going with his solo stuff, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Much yeah. more poppy, dancey, um, you know, that kind of stuff in his solo stuff because he had seen what the crowd wanted, at least yep. from the stuff that they were looking for from him and his band. And so, uh, well, yeah. and when they toured off the back of Astro Creep, obviously that was that was a case where they were playing to to crowds who knew this album, maybe knew Les Extra Sister as well, but certainly knew the whole of Astro Creep right the way through and were just there for those songs singing yep. along to everything moving you know that was uh yeah you know with a hit like this you'd start to get the crowds who are actually there for you rather than crowds who've just turned up because it's a gig and they might not know who you are um so after the important thing in their evolution actually because you can see as i say like with zombie and, and shawnee salt you can see them clearly driving towards something throughout the whole of the band. But what really kicked it off for them was after their second album, Make Them Die Slowly, they recruited Jay Younger on guitar. Yeah. Uh, and he was much more of a metal guitarist than the uh, previous guy they'd had. Um, and I think by that point, Ivan Deprume was already the drummer and he's the drummer on the last Exorcisto album. But, it uh, we've seen this with so many bands he and it's ironic because apparently i'm i i read that ivan was actually the biggest metal fan of anyone in the band but he wasn't good enough to be a proper metal drummer um you know and that's a horrible thing to have to say but you, you've only got to listen to that album and compare the drums to yep. this album you know to hear like oh wow this because is the just drums a, on this album are outstanding just killer john tempesta yeah he'd just I come mean, off recording the low album with testament for heaven's sake you know and, and prior real. to that with exodus right i just yeah. actually went back and listened to impact is imminent yesterday just to get back into the group he's has been on some great albums across the board he did the cults 2012 album choice of weapon which i he's, absolutely love he's a full-time member of the cult now, yeah, yeah now he is yeah they're actually i think they're on tour playing um the sonic temple album front to back now. another album playthrough tour yeah, yeah i yeah. think that's the case <laughs> but uh yeah i mean exodus testament i mean they they definitely went out and got themselves a metal drummer for this one right right somebody with serious chops and you can hear it from and we'll talk about this when we get to the songs you can hear it from the moment the album starts like oh oh this is a com- oh, total level up yep. in terms of the the drumming and the rhythm um but so that i mean that was important obviously but like i say the re- recruiting jay younger on guitar was more important because you can really hear the difference in guitars between make them die slowly and less six assisto which was the first one that he was involved in um so yeah they you again you know this is a band that just kept evolving uh, and you can see it from album to album and then they got into the studio with this one. They had a lot of money, big budget. They had Terry Date producing. Um, by that point, the success of Les Exorcisto and the sort of popularity of Thundercast 65 meant that they had a lot of creative control, more creative control even than they had before. Um, and yeah, just kind of took their time to really perfect things there are tales of like there being 96 multi-tracks on this album you know of them having tape machines well i have some stuff about that (laughs) oh right okay go on uh so i pulled a few just snippets from different articles uh over the years about this so loudwire actually did an article on the anniversary of astro creep a few years ago um and some of the stuff you've already mentioned you know they talked about being on tour for too long and dealing with pressure to match the success of lost exorcisto caused a rift between rob and sean who ended their relationship even before beginning Astro Creep. 
2000, yeah. uh, he also hired John Tempesta and keyboardist Charlie Clauser to make the music more industrial, forcing uh, Sean and Jay Younger to write riffs over electric electronic rhythms instead of creating them from scratch, as they had done in the past. Uh, you know, basically Zombie becoming more and more uh, influential and, and controlling over the sound that they were sort of creating. Mm. It also talks about how they recorded all of their parts separately in the studio, whereas that wasn't necessarily the process before. Yeah, we've um, seen that with a few bands, haven't we, where that, that's always a sign of a band that it just isn't quite getting along. Right. And so, you know, I think, uh, I'm trying to see, by that time we were four people who didn't work well together at all, and it was beyond stressful, Rob Zombie said in an interview for Louder Than Hell, the definitive oral history of metal. Uh, everything about it should have been great. We had finally made it. We sold millions of records. We were playing in big sold-out arenas. On the outside, it looked so effing great, but on the inside, it sucked. Um, so that was kind of stuff that they were dealing with. I did find an interview from 1995 from Chicago in December. There was a uh, by uh, someone named Andreas Veneris interviewed Jay Younger, and this is what Jay Younger had to say in 1995 to a few of his questions. Uh, he was asked, how would you describe your music? Your older material would be better classified as extreme heavy metal. What about your new stuff? Uh, he said, well, the old stuff, it was kind of psychotic and grungy. The the really old stuff, the really confusing stuff, he says, I don't know. I, I really don't know how to pigeonhole what we're doing now. People say things like funky death metal and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, he said, it's a result of trying to be the band that you'd like to see. He said, that's what I've always agreed with the other members of the band. What about if you had this big rock show like Kiss, Iron Maiden, or Alice Cooper with explosions, which is big and stupid, but then you made it kind of intelligent like Sonic Youth, and what if you had the energy of Bad Brains or Black Flag? What if it had uh, hip-hop samples? It's trying to do what we really wanted to see. And he asked them about uh, comparing Lost Exorcisto with uh, Astro Creep, and he said, it was a totally different thing. We recorded Lost Exorcisto when we were starving in New York. Uh, it was when we had day jobs. We went into the studio and recorded a live set. This time we played with all of these intense, heavy bands. We were living in L.A. It was totally different. Um, and he, the part where he talks about the actual tracks, he says, uh, the guy asks him, if I compare Astro Creep to your previous efforts, it definitely has a richer and more aggressive edge to it. Without a single doubt, it's a solid step ahead, but I must point out the fact that the production is way better, too. And Jay said it was a hard record to do. It was a 72-track recording, 48 analog and 24 digital. Yikes. It was hard to make. And he said, well, how did you keep, how did you, how did you use all those tracks? He says, you have like five vocal tracks, and then you have eight guitar tracks, and then a dozen drum tracks, and then you must save tracks for the sampling that you want to bring in and out. He said, we had two studios. One, we were working with the guitar parts in the other sample, uh, in the other, the samples. So the tapes were going back and forth all the time. It took close to six weeks to complete the recording and production of the album. It was cool to have much time to spend with the first Geffen record. We cared about completing the album as fast as possible and to get the hell out of the studio to tour. This time we had a much bigger recording budget and more freedom in time. And so I think that lines up with, with what you were just talking about, about yeah. you know bigger budget, uh, more production. But yeah, he said 72-track recording, 48 yeah. analog and 24 digital. That's nuts. I mean, talking about the 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 change in the songwriting before then for the previous uh, album, uh, well, and for this one as well, largely, I gather that the musical writing process was basically uh, Isolt and Younger 
uh, in a you know in a practice room somewhere just kind of jamming out riffs you know as so many uh songwriting pairs do you know just like constantly improvising and jamming until they found something they liked um the difference was that in most of those sessions zombie would be there not contributing but literally just going that's good that's not good like that don't yep. like that um and not in a not in a sort of horrible you know offensive way or anything that was part of the process was that they both i've read interviews with both of uh Isolt and younger where they say you know that's one of zombie's strengths is that he's got good taste and he's a good editor he's you know got the ability to listen to something and go that's brilliant do that again or yeah no that's not going to work um and so you know that was always part of the process but yeah this pre-programming rhythm tracks and then saying okay now write me a riff over that that's quite different uh and i imagine that's the sort of thing that may have rankled <laughs> a little bit um although uh younger and zombie apparently were the two big hip-hop fans in the band that's the other thing talking about the sort of the hip-hop influences which are definitely there um i remember at the time both of them bigging up public enemy a lot you know and saying like you know that they were both big hip-hop fans um and i think you can hear that in the album, you know, there's a lot of, it, it's very much an, even though it's recorded in LA, it's very much an East coast album. Uh, we've talked about this with other metal bands, you know, you can sort of hear the difference between the East and the West coast, just as you can in hip hop. And this is a very East coast album to me. So the last thing I thought was interesting about this particular interview is uh, the guy asked him, you said that people are going to get tired of alternative music. Eventually, what do you think would be the big, the next big step for music? And Jay said, it's just a feeling I have. And I'm usually right. <laughs> he said, uh, in the late 80s, I had this feeling that underground alternative music would finally break through and become big. I always had a feeling when I was a kid uh, that what I was listening to, like the Ramones, for example, it might have this buzz in the guitar, but it's basically pop music. I wondered why it was not popular like Duran Duran, because I knew people would like this. He said, now it's Green Day, so my dream kind of came true. I think that metal will come back somehow, but I don't think that it will be the same. And the guy says, do you think so? Metal is still popular overseas, not as much as it used to be, but still popular enough. He said, I think that the nature of metal is that every time a band takes it to a new extreme, uh, he said, like, there was Motorhead, then Metallica, then Venom, Slayer, Napalm, Death, Deicide, Cannibal Corpse, and he lists a bunch. He says, the noisiest, you couldn't get it any heavier. That's the reason metal is splintering to all of those things. Some bands go punk, some others go industrial. When it will come back, it will not be like, here's your thrash bands and here's your glam bands. It will be something new and concrete, but it will still be heavy. And so that was him in 1995, just kind of talking about where he saw. Yeah, well, and he, he wasn't wrong, really, was he? Right. You know, we've talked before about how we have reached a stage, and I just mentioned it, we have reached a stage now where just about everything has been done. And so to be a metal band now, you can do anything without being pigeonholed into a particular niche because it's just all metal. Yep. Yeah. Which is good. Just to, for the record, let us say this is a good thing. <laughs> Well, yeah, because um, I mean, we even talked about a band like Ghost, right? Where there there is stuff that is super poppy, and and as you meant, as you mentioned, like light melodic rock, and then they have some songs where you can clearly hear the Slayer influence in right. some of their songs. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, uh, I mean, talking about the riffs as well. This is another thing that, uh, and this is more sort of meta rather than talking about the album, but. You know, most people now know Rob Zombie as a solo artist to the point where he's recently been playing more, uh, sorry, less white zombie stuff. Apparently, I'm, I gather, I read this in his 
live gigs because the, the audience don't know the tracks. They only know his solo stuff. They don't know the white zombie tracks, um, which, you know, seemed to confound him <laughs> somewhat. Um, but it, it does also kind of speak to my personal opinion of, like, like I say, this to me, this is the best white zombie album. It's the only great album they ever made. And then his solo stuff, honestly, again, you can see the evolution of it. You know, he clearly wanted to go more industrial, more mechanized, more synths, more drum machines with his vocals, very distinctive vocals over the top. But for me, for my taste, he went too far and his solo stuff, some of it, you know, there are a few tracks here in the year, you know, Dragula's a great track, but the majority of it never hit the kind of heights that White Zombie did. And I think a lot of that is down to the lack of riffs. Um, the I, I, Funnily enough, actually, it came to mind as I was thinking about this, what we said about uh, on the last one, ACDC's Get It Hot, which we both said is kind of, you know, the problem with that song is that it, it's it's exactly what you expect from them and nothing more. Yep. And that's kind of how I feel about Rob Zombie's solo career. It's exactly what you expect from him, but nothing more. There are no surprises. There is no no quirkiness beyond the sort of quirkiness of his brand, which is built in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. like I feel like he um, took the wrong lessons out of the time with White Zombie, right? Because in this album, like I, when I think of this album for White Zombie in particular, I think of the atmosphere and the music being in perfect balance. Right. Like what they're trying to create in the vibe and the feel with all the samples and the atmosphere meshing perfectly with the music. And I feel like when he went solo, he leaned more into the the sort of songs you can dance to and leaned super heavy into the atmosphere portion right. of it. But the music wasn't in balance with that piece of it. So the, he never sort of reached to that height again as they did here, which just feels like this, as you mentioned, this is the great album where the atmosphere and the music comes together perfectly. Yep. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I read a really good thing actually in one retrospective that uh, referred to talking about these solo albums and stuff um, saying that once he got, once he went solo and got beyond the band, it was quote, not fun anymore. It's just business, which is a little harsh, but also kind of hard to disagree with. It does feel a bit like, Okay, now we're just servicing the Rob Zombie brand. Well, and and then, you know, again, too, when you get to a point where you don't have an editor anymore, right? Where you yeah. have full control over everything, that's almost never a good thing. And so, and you can see that, I mean, I feel like when you listen to this album, I can see what has worked and what has not worked with every movie that Rob Zombie has ever made. Right. right. So you can see it and you and when you watch his movies like you can see what he's trying to do and when he's the one that's fully in control it just never gets to where like it it's the execution and that's where I feel like when he went into a solo career like that's the piece that if you had more people in the room that would push back. Yeah. Then you know, although he definitely tells some horror stories about like studio involvement in his movies and stuff like that. But I just think it's like creative enough, vision. Yeah, like yeah. when you have that counterbalance that can sort of. I don't think it's ever a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Right. You know, no. It's, it, we've you and I have talked about this with regards to uh, writing and stuff. You know, everybody needs an editor. Nobody should. No author 
you know, should consider themselves above being edited because right. it is always valuable. Uh, and you get the same thing in music so often, you know, Red Hot Chili Peppers are one of the greatest examples for me. Blood Sugar Sex Magic is a fantastic album. R- absolute from start to finish, rip roaring, proper, you know, again, only one great album, just fantastic. And then every album after that is not. Yep. And you got to figure it's because that album was so successful that they were just like, well, we're in charge now. Right. Um, you know, uh, Rob Zombie's career actually reminds me, even though he's been much more prolific, has always reminded me of Carl McCoy from Fields of the Nephilim. Uh, because it was kind of the same sort of thing where the band were evolving. You could see that he was the leader of the band. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, the, the musicians were also making strong contributions and like writing some great riffs and stuff. And they kind of hit their peak and then they split up and he carried on solo. Um, and it just never was as good, you know, and I've enjoyed his stuff where it's him plus session musicians becomes the band. I've enjoyed it, but none of it is as good as those first two or three albums from the actual band. Um, because again, as you say, kind of taking the wrong lessons from it, you know, it's, uh, the riffs just aren't there. The songwriting just isn't quite as good. It's a lesson for all front men, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you don't start as a solo artist and you yeah, try to, and you yeah. start in a band where it is this creative collaborative effort, and then you try to be the, the one voice, that almost never works. Yeah, it, it, it's a rare occasion where that works out well, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, yeah, as I say, they basically, they, they built their reputation live then they had a big break with the uh, Thundercast 65 and Lesser Sister went on to sell millions. Then they went into the studio to make this. Um, I will say the the bootleg live, it's an Italian import. I'm not even sure if it is a bootleg or not. It certainly looks like a bootleg, but it's got like an Italian record label imprint on it. I don't know, whatever. Uh, it's called You Only Die Once. Or, well, it's called You Only Die Once on the cover, but then you look at the spine and it says You Only Die Twice which is another thing that makes me think it's probably a bootleg. Right. <laughs> and it's from the Lessex Assisto tour. Um, and it's not good. It, it's not good, honestly. They, uh, and mostly that's down to Zombie's performance, actually. Basically, I mean, you can't see, but I gather from reports of what they were like live, it sounds like he's so busy jumping all over the stage, running around the stage and jumping around, that he can't get his vocals out properly. Yep. You know, and his vocals, you know, there's, they are practically rapping. You know, there's a lot of words there, a lot of stuff to get out, and it's all part of the appeal and uh, sort of power of his vocals is that they're on beat. Right. It's a very you know, percussive a, delivery of exactly. his. Exactly. It all comes down to not, the rhythm. Yeah, yeah, when it's not in rhythm, because every, so much of what they're doing is is about that rhythm and about that groove. And when it's not yeah. happening, it's, and that tracks with my experiences in sort of seeing him live, I think, you know, I think one of the things that, uh, that I think about this band is the music was always better than him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like his, well, it, it was up until this album, I think, because I think you're right for the first few albums that you listen to last six assist when his vocals are not the strongest thing about it, but there's something about, and maybe it was Terry Date helped him sort it out, I don't know, but this album set the template for his vocals. If you listen, if you compare the Lesser Sister vocals to this album, they're night and day. He's lowered his register, he's definitely multi-tracking, and he's doing some kind of processing on it that makes his whole 
voice sound thicker and wider and, you know, sort of uh, more bombastic within the mix. Well, and exactly. Then from that po- but, but from that's that point in the studio, on, right? Oh, sure, sure, you sure. Know. But w- what, what I'm saying is that from that point on, that's what his vocals then sound like forevermore. Right. You listen to all of his solo albums and they all then sound the same. He clearly found whatever he was looking for, whatever process it requires to get his vocals sounding right. He found it on this album. But obviously, you can't replicate that live. That's exactly, yes. You cannot replicate that live. You can only hope to come close to it, and that affects the songs that you choose to play live. And if you choose to play songs that you, you know, it's harder to replicate it on, then then obviously you're setting people up to be disappointed. And um, But again, for an album and for what they're doing here, like, it just, it all comes together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and talking about the the crossover appeal as well, I found out while I was researching this, I found out that they were, according to Jay Younger, anyway, uh, they were the first band to play both Donington, you know, Castle Donington, Monsters of Rock, and the Reading Festival, which is a sort of not metal, but rock festival uh-huh. uh, held in England. Um, which is interesting because Reading, nowadays, it's more common for bands that verge into metal to play Reading, but certainly in the nineties, absolutely not, you know, it was not uh, a thing. So that, that's interesting. They were also the first band to appear on both headbangers ball and 120 minutes. Again, according to Jay Young, that is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I did not know that at all, but they did have, and I can speak to that from sort of personal experience. You know, I know a lot of people who do not, did not care for metal and probably still don't care for metal per se, but loved this album. You know, I'd play them this album and they go, that's fucking great. Um, there was something about all the mishmash of elements that went into their sound and particularly into this album um, that really appealed, you know, had that crossover appeal, appealed to people who wouldn't could think of themselves as metal fans. Yeah. Um. Well, this album appealed to a heck of a lot of people because it peaked at number six on the Billboard 200 chart and sold in the U.S. over 2.6 million copies. So it went double platinum. It's amazing uh, to me that it didn't get to number one. It's amazing. I Considering know. how popular and successful it was. Like, yeah, you think, what was number one? to <laughs> What was in the top five to keep you out of it? <laughs> We'd have to look that one up. But yeah, yeah. in, in uh, but number six and uh, over two and a half million copies in the U.S. So. Yeah, that's uh, well, and it's still selling. That's oh, the other sure. thing. That's the other thing that I saw in. Uh, I can't remember. I think it was an interview with Zombie. I'm not sure, but somebody pointed out they're like, it's still selling. This album still sells, even though there are elements of it. Some of the electronic elements do make it sound a little bit dated, but nevertheless, this album still continues. It's a perennial seller. It's become a classic, you know, metal album that just keeps selling copies. Yep, or or downloads or streams or whatever. However, the fuck they measure it. These days, I don't know. Um, so uh, let's look at the the facts of the album. Then, so yeah, two point six million copies sold. Recorded in nineteen ninety, well, released in nineteen ninety five. Presumably recorded in ninety four. Eleven songs, uh, fifty three minutes runtime, but that includes silence at the end because this was the peak era of you know uh, the hidden track at the end yeah. of the CD. So if you cut that out, it's actually forty five minute album. Which I think is is a good length for this yep, sort of very solid you know, for this sort of album. It's the only one with John Tempester on drums, but like I said, but it shows. <laughs> and <laughs> really then he shows. followed Zombie into his solo work. He did, yes. He played he played on his solo stuff. Yeah, 
which I think again speaks to the value of having a drummer like him on this album. Um, it's also right. So I have the CD of this. Uh, the packaging of White Zombie albums was always great. Uh, basically, Rob Zombie because he's a cartoonist as well and a good one. You know, a genuinely good illustrator and cartoonist. Um, and so both Last Sexisto and this one are uh, big fold-out booklets in the CD. So to make up for the fact that you haven't got the big album art, what they would do instead was produce these 20-page, you know, concertina fold-out uh, CD inlays. Uh, so you said you own this album. Have you got the CD as well? I do not anymore, but I did have it for many years. Right. So you remember the booklet with all his cartoons and yep. hand-drawn lyrics and stuff on it. Um yeah, big fold-out thing. There's a, a new... Basically, every song gets its own zombie illustration plus hand-drawn lyrics, uh, which is nice. Uh, well, I say hand-drawn lyrics. A couple of them aren't hand-drawn, but they're all basically designed by him. You can see that. And then photos of the band in there and stuff as well. And it was a real... It was nice, because this was also the peak era of people lamenting the loss of vinyl and the big... Right you know, big pictures on the album and all and gatefold sleeves and all that sort of stuff. And they were clearly, cause they're from that era as well. They, you know, he was clearly trying to sort of give people something else along those lines. And it, it did actually make them a real experience again. You know, this is kind of pre, uh, heavy internet stuff. So this was all you had, you know, th- and I this and wish interviews and magazines was all you had to learn about the band. And it certainly gets across their aesthetic. I'll say that. <laughs> For sure. And I kind of wish that extended to the cover. I mean, the cover is designed. I mean, it, ha- it almost has like a, like a photo cover of a comic book feel to, to mm. the, you know, the front cover. But uh, I would love to have seen his artwork be kind of a variant cover for right. the album. And maybe, who knows, maybe they did do that at some time, but um, well, I, I because think it, it is a super interesting to- style. But I think it would have had to have been a variant because I, uh, I am almost certain, and I'm going based on absolutely nothing other than just what I know of the music business, that if they tried to do that for this cover, the label would have just gone, no, yep. you know, no, you can't do that. You've, you, because that will just turn too many people off. You've just got to have a picture of the band. Um, especially as you have an attractive woman in the band, therefore, you know, you must have her on the cover. That's how the record industry works and still does. Uh, one thing I want to point out about the sound of this album, like I said, it was Terry date producing and he did a very good job. Uh, and I remember them talking about him being much like the guys in Pantera as well said the same thing is that the thing about Terry is that he's not a songwriter, but he's a great technician. He really knows how to use the studio to get the sound you want. Uh, which again, I think, you know, reflects the quality of this album or is reflected I mean- in the quality of this album. Let's just talk about a few of the albums that he has produced over the year. Uh, Metal Church's The Dark. Uh, let's see. Dream Theater, when, what, when Dream and Day Unite. Overkill, The Years of Decay. Overkill, Horror Scope, one of their best mm-hmm. albums. Um, let's see. Well, wasn't uh, wasn't Horoscope the one that then got him the Pantera? Uh, I believe so, because Horoscope yeah. was 1991 and Pantera 1992. So, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. think you're right about that. D- Deftones, uh, Stained, who obviously was huge back in the day. I'm not a gigantic fan of them. but <laughs> Stained, there's a band um, I haven't thought about for a long time, man. Slipknot, Corn, <laughs> um, Soulfly. So, oh, he produced Repentless from Slayer in 2015. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, 
it's unfortunate he didn't have better quality songs to work with on that also album. Interesting, but. <laughs> well, right, hang on though. Well, that's also interesting that he did Soulfly because uh, Chaos AD was Andy Wallace, right? Oh, interesting. And Lesser Sex Assisto was also Andy Wallace. And then this one was Terry Date. How interesting. Ooh, he also did uh, Havoc's Unnatural Selection, which is a great album. Mm. So, uh, man, he's... Wow, a lot to dig into there. And in the 90s, he was very much one of the, you know, producers in demand. Um, And he did a great job on this. However, the mastering, and I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad job here, but the mastering of this album is unfortunately another example of the loudness wars um the you know this is an album that lives and dies by its dynamics they're a band that lives and dies by the dynamics of the songwriting um but sonically this is not a dynamic album like it is everything is maxed out and it, it does do it a disservice because you get some tracks including the opening track where uh you know the drums and guitars kick in and things are clearly meant to get you know loud except everything's already loud right. and so it doesn't have the same effect it actually kind of underwhelms a little bit and it's a it's a crying shame um yeah because it's there in the songs but whoever mastered it just turned everything up to max and, it looks like uh, the, the guy who mastered it was ted jensen who has uh that's a name i've heard before mastered yeah. 16 grammy award-winning albums uh, some of them were Nora Jones' Come Away With Me, Evanescence's Fallen, Green Day's oh. American Idiot. Uh, let's see what else. Well, I, I wonder then, I mean, because, yeah, that's the name I've heard before, and those are some good albums. I wonder then if he was basically under orders from the record label, because this was the time when, you know, it was the Loudness Wars, are called that for a reason. It was uh, every label just wanted everything to be maxed right. out, uh, you know, on every record. And Did so they do may, a remaster a of this album at any point in time? Do you know, I'm not sure. I don't think I, that, I don't think I don't that think I've seen. Have, no. um, I think they did do a live recording of this. He did. Rob Zombie did a live right. recording of this album, which I know that uh, I read somewhere that Sean was not super psyched about, even though there are royalties yeah. that come off of that, that her and Jay both get paid. But um yeah, I didn't. I don't know if they did a remaster or not. That'd be Wouldn't interesting. It, I mean, ironically, a remaster of this album would basically involve most remasters involve sort of turning things up and making them more clear. Here, a remaster would actually involve turning things right. down, it, it, <laughs> right? Pushing some elements more into the background. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> because that's the problem: is that literally everything is maxed all the time. <laughs> Here's a thought, though. Let's say you went back to to do this. Would would you have to get permission for a lot of those samples over again? Oh, that's does a good that point. extend to a remastering, or is it like that is sealed in amber at this point in time, and you best leave it alone? Um, yeah, the mid nineties was still a bit of a wild west for sampling, right. so yeah, the contracts may not cover that, and right. there are a lot of samples on this album. Yep, I mean, there's a lot on Less Exorcisto, but there are at least twice as many on this album. Um, so yeah, that that could be an issue. All right, so shall we get into the album then? Let's do it. All right, so kicking off with obviously the opening track, track one, Electric Head, part one, The Agony.
I mean, not only for me is this a fantastic opening track, but it's atmosphere from the get-go. Right, you've got the oh, yeah, the, yeah. the sort of cathedral music. You've got perhaps you'd better start from the beginning. Like that is what a what an amazing way to begin an album, right? It's well, just and that. spoken in. I don't know actually know where that's from, but it sounds like it comes from a Hammer horror movie. Uh, it is from the. I have it right here. Uh, where the heck is it? Uh, let me just pull it up. It is from To the Devil, a Daughter, a.k.a. Child of Satan, a 1976 movie starring Christopher Lee. So it probably is a Hammer Horror movie then. <laughs> yeah, and it sounds like one, yeah. <laughs> yep, and so that's that's just a perfect, perfect tone setter for what you get. And then when the drums finally kick in, oh. I just feel like you, I feel like it's announcing that this entire album no not only that but this entire album the drums are going to be right in your face like the whole the whole album the the percussion is just fantastic and so you just get that right out of the gate yeah absolutely the 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 drum sound on this is the one thing that is absolutely faultless uh it's just crystal clear yeah it's so So well recorded yeah um yeah, I mean, yeah, that that, that crazy out of tune horror movie organ as well. Uh, yes, at the so start. good. Yeah, man. Uh, and I don't know again because I don't know where it's from, so I don't know if the whole out of tune thing is part of the sample or if it's something that they did to it. But I, it doesn't matter. I don't care. It works brilliantly. Uh, and then, yeah, as you say, the kind of wailing guitars and the drums. Absolutely, you know, we are the whole we're here to clean your clock thing. That just, re- you know. Yes, just totally. comes across, and it builds the anticipation as well because you could tell, like, like I said, within literally two seconds, you're like, "Oh, this is not the same kind of drumming as on the last album. Right. This is going to rock hard," and so it builds up that anticipation, uh, and then you get the big crash and the down tune chugging and the riff, uh, and it's just it's brilliant. It's such a fantastic opener, so such a fantastic way to open, and such a fantastic track to open with. Um, I love it. Uh, although it does have <laughs> one, one of the things I like about this song is that it is one of those songs that really relies on the dynamics. You know, there's not a lot of variance in the riff, but the, the, the loudness, quietness, you know, up and down and whatever you makes the song. But one of the other things that makes it, oh, and a good example of that is the first, after the first chorus, uh, you've got the. I'm not even sure what it is. I think it's Isolt's bass has been like sampled or something. And it's going. Vroom, 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 yes. And after and every line, it goes like every, yeah. it's almost like it reminds me of uh, the ministry song. Um, it almost, the, the effect it's, it doesn't sound like a guitar riff, but it, it's got that effect of uh new world order. That, that sort of right. uh, the riff from new world order where it goes, dan, dan. Like, it, it's just like every time he, he sings a line, it's like, like after yeah. every, line and uh that's awesome but after the after the first chorus specifically there's a bit where the drums drop out and the only thing carrying the rhythm is this sample of the bass and him shouting yeah before it crashes back into the verse and that's all over the album you know and again this is kind of they're all clearly him on another track that they're just dropping in yes there are so many and you on the previous album he did it but you could tell he was doing it live and it and so it kind of it doesn't quite work as well. Whereas here, because yeah, they're working with such a bigger budget, got so much more time, so many more tracks. There's so many just you know what sound like sampled bits of zombie shouting, yeah, 
in the background. Yeah. Well, when you have 72 tracks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's quite an assemblage of a song. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I love the breakdown. I mean, they don't have many middle eights. Their middle eights are often not, you know, there's not a lot of solos, that sort of thing. Um, uh, what they are most often with in this album anyway is a breakdown. But I do I think this one's particularly effective because everything just stops, collapses. You've got the guitar wailing and then it picks back up again, you know, with Tempesta's drums coming in um, in a repeat of what he does at the end when the uh, song cuts out. And again, it very, very rhythmic, just kind of, you know, sounds like a man thrashing away at the drum kit, even if that's not actually how he plays it. That's what it sounds like and really gets that power across. Yeah. Awesome. Great, fantastic opener. Yeah, really is. Uh, I actually, um, I'm not going to name any names, but I had an ex-girlfriend who used to wake up to this track. This was her wake-up music for a period. She'd wake up, uh, this CD lived in her, and again, not a huge metal fan, uh, but this CD lived in her CD player in her bedroom, and she would basically wake up, press play, and this track (laughs) would play while she was getting up in the morning (laughs) to wake her up. And it certainly did the trick. Yeah, no, this this will get you up in the morning. This is a cup of coffee for the years, for sure. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, on to track two, Supercharger Heaven. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. favorite song on the album it is good isn't it i freaking love this song um when the, this was a single apparently i didn't even realize that yeah when the main riff kicks in at like 40 seconds it's so good and again i i feel like every song i'm like tempestus drums tempestus drums but like the rolling drums during the main verse are just mm-hmm. they're just like a steamroller they're just yes. like the the perpetual motion, the 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 momentum, um, that main riff with the you know with the with the at the at the end of it every time is like so good. Um, the sample, which in this one is also from Child of Satan, it is not heresy. I will not recant. Is what just a great like sample. Yeah. so freaking good, dude. And like that's the thing too is like. There's a crap ton of samples on this album, but most of them are so well used. They're yeah. just like 
in a place where they either complement the rhythm of the song perfectly or the quote itself is just so good that it fits perfectly at that juncture of the song. Like it's there. There's a lot of albums and a lot of songs where you hear samples and they're just there mm-hmm. and they're so well placed on pretty much every song on this album that it's like, I think that's what makes it so quotable is they're so perfectly placed. Yeah. It, it speaks again to the taste, you know, the sort of the, the judgment call, as you say, right. of, is this the right place for the sample and is it the right sample? Um, yeah, it, it is not heresy and I will not recant. Just yep. fucking, oh man, I've never seen that movie, but that line just makes me want to see it. <laughs> yeah. So everybody can go out to the devil, a daughter, AKA child of <laughs> Satan. It's a 1976 film. Yeah. Uh, everybody can go out and watch that now. It's it's a real groover of a track. This one, yes. I mean, that was totally. another movement that White Zombie kind of got lumped in with a little bit. Was the the groove metal, and and they are groovy, absolutely, but um, heavy. This song is freaking heavy, right, right, right. I mean, but it's but it is a groove to pick totally up after the, yep. the bombast of the opener. Totally, and a lot of the heaviness comes from Tempesta's drums. The drums, you're right, they're just absolutely fucking so all in this song. They're so heavy and groovy at the same time. The, yeah, the build-up in the pre-chorus, uh, just everything about Tempesta's performance makes this song for me. Um, uh, what are the other things I love? Oh, I love the, the, the middle eight, the, the bit where you've got the It's Not Heresy sample, uh, gives Sean Issel a chance to shine. Yep. There's a few tracks on here where everything drops out and it's just the bass. And because it, 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 much like Pantera, it's a band where you may not realize what the bass is doing, until suddenly it's the only thing playing. And then you go, oh, fucking hell, that's really good. <laughs> well, and you especially know. in an album like this where everything is right at that same level. Yeah. Like it's easy yeah, exactly. to get lost. Yeah, it, it certainly is. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also just want to point out that I think, I mean, Zombies lyrics are, you know, long, convoluted, strange, gibberish. surreal. Yeah, yeah like, you know, sort of borderline gibberish in places uh, on every track. You know, every track you could probably dissect the lyrics and take away a hundred different meanings, and probably none of them are actually what he was talking about anyway. Uh, but they are good lyrics. They're very rhythmic, as we said, very percussive sort of lyrics, very surreal and trippy. But occasionally there's also an absolute gem in there, and I love the line in here, a motherfucker of invention. Yep. Something about that line, the way he delivers it, and the line itself, the pun, I love it. That's one of his best lines for me. But also the chorus. The vocals in the chorus here are superb. It's such a great, it sounds crazy to say sing-along, but it really is a sing-along right. chorus. <laughs> Screaming devil man at the top of your voice. It's, uh, yeah, so good. Yeah, awesome. Absolutely love this song. doesn't hang around either. It's a, it's a nice fast track. Uh, you know, it comes to a nice screeching end. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it gets in, smacks you around the face, and then gets out again. Yeah, and I think as a, a one-two punch to start the album, like it, it is outstanding. It really is. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I'm interested then to hear to think what you think about going on to track three, which is Real Solution Number Nine. Oh, well, today I want you each to stand up and hold your hands in some stupid symbol. Oh, You're gonna get up and scream. You're gonna get up and burn an X in your head.
I mean, definitely from a tempo standpoint, it slows things down from what we've had on the first two songs on the album. Very industrial feel to it. Mm. And um, I do like the, the I'm already dead. I'm already dead. I, I, I like the industrial elements of it. I like the samples in it. The music itself doesn't grab me in this right. one. And not just because the tone is slowed down. Like I just feel like the, the first two songs feel very dynamic and this one doesn't. Yeah. I, I, I thought that this one might kind of slow things down a bit too much for you. I really like it, but I, I think that's, I mean, it's one of the most simple riffs you could imagine, but it works so well that I really like it. You know, the, just the, literally the main dum dum down yep. riff. I just think is great because it works so well again with the drums, really, really groovy, this track. Um, and another thing I like about it is just that again, not that many bands were doing this kind of vocal at the time. Like now it's fairly, I wouldn't say passe, but fairly common. Right. Um, but the way he delivers the vocals here and the processing and effects used on them, as you say, sounds quite industrial, just still wasn't all that common. Um, well, just like who will survive and what will be left of them. Like that, that a question that's asked throughout, you know, the, uh, the song, which is. Yeah. Well, and it's taken from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yep. That was the, uh, advertising tagline on the poster for the Texas, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, and I don't think this is about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but it is such a great line that, you know, I don't blame him for nicking it. <laughs> um, the chorus as well. Oh, I mean, and, co- uh, so, it's the, so that sample, you know, um, I remember her saying, I'm already dead. It was mm-hmm. taken from a primetime live interview with Diane Sawyer in 1994, and it's one of the Manson family women. Uh... When she says, I'm already dead, she's talking about Sharon Tate's last words as the lady is killing her. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, and then the other sample, which is, are you hurt in any way? Do you feel like hurting yourself is from the TV show Cops. Right. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, yeah, it's such a weird, like, esoteric source of sampling. <laughs> um, I was just going to say the chorus. I mean, obviously, vocally, the chorus, there's nothing to it. It's just him going, yeah, again. Um, but the this is where the riff really, like, you listen to that. I mean, it's kind of, it's a little bit muddy, so it's kind of hard maybe to pick out. But if you listen to that, you realize Jay's going all up and down the fretboard yeah. on that. That's that's quite an involved rhythmic uh, riff in the chorus. You know, not especially difficult for any good guitar player, but nevertheless, compared to the simplicity of the rest of the track, I really like that that's where they get complex, uh, just to sort of change things around a bit, like simple verses and then an actually quite musically complex chorus. Yep. Just, you know, a uh, nice little change. Yeah. Like, I, I don't dislike this song. I just, I, I feel like it, it compared to the first two, it's just not as dynamic. Although I do like his delivery of the lyrics in this one. And I do like the I, the samples that they used. And um, it's just, it it's not a hard stop from the first two, but it's definitely like a deceleration for sure. Sure, sure. Well, and uh, and the next track isn't, you know, amazingly fast. So let's move on to that track four, Creature of the Wheel. Creature of the Wheel, take a wicked way. Take a 
Yeah, which is, I kind of feel like these, much like the first two songs had a very um, sort of one-two punch, I feel like these two songs do just in a different way. Mm-hmm. And if yeah, you like, if you're if you're up for that sort of change, then these two songs actually work well together as a pair, much like the first two songs do. Um, but it kind of falls in the same category for me. It's not, um, it's just not as dynamic as I think. It, it doesn't, even though it has a lot of the same pieces, like it doesn't have the same atmosphere that I think even Real Solution Number Nine captures. Because clearly, with those samples that it uses, like there, there's there's a lot of darkness in that, you know, in the vibe of that song. So yeah, um, yeah. this one is a bit more of a grinder. You're right that this this doesn't have the sort of samples for atmosphere of uh, Real Solution, but I think it has its own atmosphere. It's much more metallic, actually, this track is, you know, the riff is a much more metal riff. Yes, um, it's you've heavier. Got zo- you've got zombie whispering underneath it as well when it first opens which i didn't even notice the first few times that i heard this album like it's in the lyric sheet but it's so far down in the mix that i just thought those that he was just writing random shit before he writes the lyrics because that's the sort of thing you could imagine him doing (laughs) and then i listened to it on headphones i think for the first time you know many years ago and i was like oh shit no these those lyrics are there you can just barely hear them yeah Um, he does that kind of whispery thing in the grease paint uh, and monkey brain song too, but it's clearer. Yeah. It's le- it's it's further up yeah. in the mix. Absolutely. Um, the I I just like I say this is a much more metallic riff. I really like it. Um, I think a lot of the honestly a lot of the atmosphere for this track for me comes from the lyrics. From uh, just the title, creature of the wheel is like fucking great title. Yeah, That's it's one got a very old does- ones feel to it. Yeah, it's one thing that he does really well is titles. Uh, and the lyrics are really good. You know, new God, kill machine, and man say Lord of the Engines. Like, yep. I'm not sure what it means, but it sounds fucking great. It's the industrial <laughs> apocalypse, man. It's, yeah, it, exactly. You know, the, it's the, very mad. It sounds very Mad Max. It makes you feel. Yes, you yeah, that it actually mood. does. That's a great point. Yeah. Um, but it does also have that uh, so, a sort of falling riff in the chorus underneath those lyrics the new god kill machine and man um that that just feels like it's tumbling and falling it always felt to me like that was that riff is what anthrax kept trying to do throughout the 90s it's what they were looking for and they never quite found it i mean as i said i like anthrax in the 90s the john bush period it's my favorite anthrax but it always felt to me like that's the sort of riff that they were trying to find and never quite nailed it. You have just given me something to ponder. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, because it does feel like you, you mentioned sort of that that sort of falling down thing. It does it 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 feels like kind of a boulder clumsily falling down the side of a mountain sort of yeah. thing. You know what I mean? Where like and every time it smacks the side of the mountain is the is the percussive, you know part of that particular riff but that that is interesting the anthrax uh parallel there yeah i mean scott Ian wouldn't thank me for it but you know no but interesting to uh, another see and that's why i I love having these discussions because even when we talk about something like that like it gives you another reason to go back now and listen to one of those john bush era albums and be like huh yeah i wonder if i hear that you know in this kind of stuff so cool Yeah, yeah kind of reaching for it uh oh and this is the one that ends with a sort of screaming loop 
uh, as well, which is uh, a nice touch. All right, so uh, yeah, so you want to talk about percussive? Okay, let's move on to track five, Electric Head Part Two, The Ecstasy. I just said, up yours, baby. I mean, what a fucking great track. I freaking love this. Like the the samples from Shaft are just so great. <laughs> like they're I said up yours, baby, and then boom, it just kicks in and like absolutely freaking great groove to the song. This is where I feel like um not that the other two songs were a letdown, but it's just like there's the dynamics of the first two, then the change of pace for this one, and I feel like we lock back into the groove with you know, with this song and it's just very, it's got that, it just has that great, great groove. The percussion is just absolutely perfect in this one. And some of the best, uh, quotes, you know, to sample of the entire album. Yeah. I mean, yeah. How many metal bands would start what is effectively the title track of the album with shaft? (laughs) Yeah. It's great. uh... And then the other one where the guy says, I'll say any damn thing I want. I just yeah. like that makes me laugh every time I see it. it's just like such a such a like smart ass response. Like it but also like super cheesy at the yeah. same time. It's like perfect. I'm like, why did they choose that particular sample? But I love it. Yeah, and it, it is another great riff. I mean, you're you're right that it kind of locks back in with this, but I, the difference is that I think those previous two tracks are necessary to slow things down before you sure. come into this track because, because otherwise, this wouldn't have felt different exactly yeah. it wouldn't have the same impact uh and it is it's a real stormer of a track it's a great riff got a great rhythm it great really barrels along uh yeah great bass this is i think probably the track closest to the previous album closest to less exorcisto in terms of its composition and even the sound but uh, which makes it a good comparison in terms of production because the production, you know, on this, the sound, the sonic quality of it is so much better than anything else on uh, anything on Les Exorcisto. But I think in terms of the songwriting, it, it's the, probably the most uh, similar track on this album. Uh, so if, you, you know, if you're out there and this is your favorite track on the album, maybe you should go out and you know, listen to Les Exorcisto. Because I think if if this is one of your favorite tracks on this album, you would probably dig that album as well. It's much more... You know, it just feels a little bit more psychedelic, a bit more groovy than metally. You know, more on the groove yes. side. Yeah, totally. Um, uh, and I mean, it, and obviously them shouting "Go, go, go" at the end over and over just makes you think of go-go dancers, which is you know, 
a recurring theme in for uh, sure yeah. in zombies lyrics and especially in la sexta sister <laughs> yeah i think i love that this track is at number five because this is in many albums the point where things start to lull mm. and but not here not here you know they just reaffirm it which is which is good i, I like i really like the placement of this song and it just sort of snaps everything back into that that groove. But you're right. You couldn't you couldn't have five songs in a row like this. No, no, it would just be well. You could, but it wouldn't work as it, well. It as just an wouldn't album. be. Yeah. yeah, you wouldn't feel yeah. it. Uh, so actually, the ending. I think the the end. This is the ending that's got these breakneck double kicks from uh, Tempesta, and I think it might be one of the only places on the album where he actually does double kicks because obviously they're not that sort of band. You know, and they're right. not, it's not like they're playing death metal or anything. Uh, despite what that reviewer may have said before. Um, I think it might be the only place in the album where he does them, but they are really effective because it is to sort of barrel you home towards the end and really yeah. hammer the point home. Um, unfortunately, then it fades. Uh, you know, it was the 90s. <laughs> yep. Uh, but it fades into what would effectively have been side two if this was a, a vinyl album, which is track six, Grease Paint and Monkey Brains. Again, definitely a, a tone change yes. from the other one. But um, the thing that I made a note about, and I I might have missed it, but is this the only song with an actual guitar solo on it? It's not the only song, but yeah, they're not. Even though Jay's younger, great guitarist, you're clearly you know, capable of playing some great solos. Uh, he just doesn't do it a yeah. lot. Uh, this isn't the only track, no, but it is one of the few. Uh, this this song super heavy, um, the sort of carnival opening. This was the one where I also noticed that his his sort of very low, almost whispered delivering of the lyrics very menacing in mm. this song. I feel like it's as opposed to like sort of dreamy, or I, I just felt like there's it's a very sort of menacing delivery of the of the lyrics. Yeah, I mean it's. This album has lots of different types of vocal delivery yep. on it. Uh, I think it's a good showcase of his versatility. Uh, you know, when he's not doing his standard, yeah, 
uh, vocals. Right, right, you right. Know, <laughs> when he's trying to, he can do other things and he does them very well. Uh, he doesn't do them as much these days, but on this album, it, yeah, it kind of showcases that he ca- he is more versatile than that. And um, it's important to break those up, like, much like we talked yeah. about with the sort of tone and tempo of of a couple of the previous songs there. And so this is uh, this is a nice contrast to some yes. of the other deliveries. Absolutely, and all this track has probably got uh, some of the best bass on it as well, um, yep. because it is again very groovy and very groove led track with uh, fantastic bass playing from Sean Isolt. Um the, the laughing clown samples that they, the fuckers like. <laughs> yeah, so many people probably traumatized by the samples in this song. <laughs> um, but I do like the. I also like the change of rhythm and groove at the end to play yes. us out uh and it which that feels very pantera to me oh okay now to me it reminded me of machine head it reminded me of uh i i think it's i'm broken from oh yeah yeah yeah. but that's that's what sort of popped into my head was pantera at the end of the song but that's no but you you're absolutely right see what came to mind for me was davidian uh the first track on machine head's you know, opening track of Machine Head's first album. Um, but yeah, you're, you're right that it's actually closer to I'm Broken in terms of uh, the sort of the change, yeah. But it is nice anyway. It's an, You know, it has a nice effect. Yes, totally. Um, and I, I really like, that again, that this track is a breather uh, because you've had the previous track was just balls out, full speed ahead, you know, everything at maximum speed. Yep. And then so is the next track. So it's nice to have, you know, a breather between the sort of madness of Electric Head Part 2 and then track seven, Eye Zombie. Totally, which is probably the thrashiest song on the album. Uh, yes, probably, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily the most metallic riff. It is right. a great riff. It is a great riff, don't get me wrong. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it is absolutely... I'm amazed that this wasn't a single. I could have swore... I heard this so much in so many clubs that I just assumed it had been a single, and it turns out that it wasn't. <laughs> Well, but it's just like it, it. You're absolutely right. It should have been a single because it maybe not the first single because it it's not as much. dynamic as some of the other songs, but it is relentless. Yeah, relentless is a really good way of putting it for this track. Actually, yeah, I mean, and it shows off the whole band as well. Everybody, this is one of those tracks where everybody is firing on all cylinders. 
Yeah, and, and the way his delivery of you know just is is almost like the it's almost like the same tone the whole time. Like it's it, it's good. It fits in with the song just kind of barreling through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a really short song as well. Uh, it, it's another one that doesn't hang around. You know, gets in, boom, and then off you go. Um, Which I think if you're gonna if you're writing a song that's thrashier and is straight ahead and is very you know sort of up tempo, like keep it short. Yeah. Oh, no, I agree. Yeah. I agree, absolutely. Uh, I, I love how, and this is why relentless is such a good word that you use to describe it. Like, even the middle eight in this, the the quote-unquote solo is just a single really high-pitched note. Right. <laughs> just wailing and held throughout the whole thing, followed by eight bars of feedback. Yep. <laughs> it's just like, oh, okay, this is where we're going. Is it right? It's that sort of track. Yeah, it's like we don't have time for like a full-blown solo. We're just going to... We're just going to make a lot of noise that's really painful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's... Because <laughs> the second half of the song is barreling through, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's such a great track. I mean, there's no... It's, uh, unfortunate that there's not a lot to say about it and it sounds like we're giving it short shrift but there's just there's, there isn't much to say about this track other than it's fucking great no i love this song it's it's yeah. freaking awesome and i love that we're you know here we are at track seven and five six seven has been this sort of you know nice back and forth where yeah. again where a lot of albums start to really dip in this middle section of the album and this one has kept you has not, uh, and the reason they dip is because they settle in with songs that sound too similar, even if they're heavier songs, right? But they get, right, right. And so here, it's like they they keep you going back and forth and get you through the middle part of the album as you sort of head down the home stretch. Yeah, well, well and right, you want to talk about an album not dipping in places where it so often does. From this, you go into track eight, which is, of course, the big hit single from this album, "More Human Than Human." Even if you have never heard this entire album, even if you don't care about White Zombie, like... You've heard this song. I yeah. almost feel like I don't even have a... I don't even know what my perspective on this song is anymore, because I've literally heard this song a million times. 
You know, it's like, yeah, uh, it's, I love it. It's a fantastic song. It like, to me has the best examples of the groove that white zombie could put together. And it's such a great example of like the sound that they, they could kind of create at their peak. Um, but it's like, I mean, you've heard it so many times. I don't even know. I, I feel like I've been through the rabbit hole and back again with, you know, with this song over the years. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I do remember hearing this. I remember hearing this for the first time when I first heard this album because I immediately pressed rewind and, and played it again yeah. after it had finished. It was one of those tracks where I was like, oh, okay, I've reached the best track on the album without question. Um, I'm not actually sure anymore whether it is the best track on the album, you know, from my taste, but certainly at the time. It was kind of oh, this is the perfect white zombie track. Yep, and you can't even now, even having heard it, heard, hearing it, you know, millions of times, you still can't it argue. Still gets you. you can't argue that it's not the best song on the album. You don't know right. if maybe if it, it, you know, and and probably that it's just from the wear of having heard it so many times. But but you, you can't, can't argue deny how good it, it is. You can't yeah. argue against it. It is yeah, it, the build of this song is is pretty much perfect. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, it's the big one. Uh, it, it's kind of amazing that the the hit single from this album is at track eight, really. I, I don't know whether that's deliberate in the sense that they knew that it was going to be the first single and maybe had a feeling it was going to be a hit uh, and so wanted to put it back there so that the album didn't dip at that position or whether it's all just, you know, very fortuitous coincidence. I mean, um, I might have made this the closer of the album that's you know now like seeing the spot that it's in which is great i mean it it just keeps the album rolling forward you know it just keeps the it's another exclamation point on you know the back half of this album but it's so good as the closer to then roll into the opener of electra head part one not, not that this album needed any help being played over and over again, you know. But, but, <laughs> no, but, but I, certainly, I know what you're saying, yeah. yeah, it would have been an interesting choice, yeah. But I'm mean, the. I tell you what, talking about the samples, there are layers in the samples of this introduction. Like, there's the gasping and everything, but there's also a guitar playing, and I don't think they're part of the same sample. Again, uh-huh. I don't know where the where the samples are from, but it doesn't sound to me like it's part of the same thing. So even the samples have got layers. You've got that amazing riff. Just like an absolutely, and again, not complicated, not difficult to play, but it doesn't, but still, you know, nobody had played that before. And it's so fucking good. Sean Nissel's bass, again, amazing and carrying the song through the verses. Um, and one of Rob's vocal, uh, best vocal performances on the album. No question. Agreed. Like, absolutely 100%. on point. 100%. Great staccato rhythm on time, just absolutely nailing it. Um, I think this is the track where you can see the hip hop influence for sure more than anywhere else, especially the East coast style more than anywhere else. This is because the East coast is much more kind of, you know, you hit the beat, you hit the rhyme on the beat, uh, at a million miles an hour, as opposed to the West coast, which is much more sort of bluesy kind of lazy off the beat sort of stuff. Um, yeah. And, and he absolutely does nail it on the beat at a million miles an hour. That's exactly what he does. Um, and then, of course, there's a Blade Runner reference just to really put the cherry on top. Yeah. And that's that, for me, that was enough to for me to love this track forever. <laughs> well, and the samples are from the uh, 1982 movie Cafe Flesh. 
Oh, okay. Never which, heard uh, which, according to Wikipedia, is a post-apocalyptic cult pornographic science fiction film. Oh, wait. I think I have heard of that, now that you say that. Yes, the... Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember reading about this a while ago. The, I mean, not... Yeah, flipping heck. Certainly fits with the... Checks all the boxes for a white zombie reference, right? Yes. So, <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. not yeah. shocking to anyone that that would yeah. be a, uh, Vintage, a sample that they would pull. Plus yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah, totally. 100%. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I should have yeah. guessed. <laughs> I mean, I should, again, I should say, I've never seen that film, but I have heard of it. I didn't, yeah, man. Now I'm tempted to go and see it. Anyway, for purely scientific purposes, of course. Right, research. Yeah, research. Um, so yeah, again, there's not a lot more you can say. It's, it is almost the perfect, you could argue that it is the perfect white zombie track. Uh, it's so good. And it was a phenomenal hit. Uh, and I am sure that the success of this song as a single contributed to those two and a half million album sales for the, for this album. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a, one of those songs where if you're at a party tomorrow and someone puts the song on. Like just as as soon as you hear the first bar of that sample. Well, you know, yeah, bop, I mean, bop, yeah, bop, bop, it's bop. like everybody loves a song. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I could see moving. someone saying like, well, I kind of get sick of it over the years. I heard it so many different times, but it, again, you cannot argue that this is a great, this is a great song. Yeah. Well, and it's another one that I heard so many times at clubs, but it always filled the floor. And I was one hundred percent. I don't care if I heard it every week. I'm still going to dance to it. Yep. It's a fucking great track. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, but we must move on from it. So let's go to track nine, El Fantasmo and the Chicken Run Blasterama. This this is I mean title aside, uh, <laughs> another kind of great rolling groove here. It's it, I mean it, it's in an impossible position. How do you live up to the song before it? Right, like you're true, true. It, but I I feel like it's not a huge letdown from that song. Like, oh, no, I, I don't think so at all. I it's another one. I mean, this track kind of explodes in your face. Yeah. Like that, in, you know, incredible bit of guitar and drum work uh, at the start that opens it is brilliant, and then yeah, again, sort of you know, locks into a very very groovy rhythm. Um, you've got more different stuff from uh, Rob's vocals, you know, a, another different treatment, um, and a great chorus, like fantastic. This is you know, 
a lot of their choruses are just one line repeated. This is has actually, you know, quite a few line, uh, words in it. Um, and it's really good. It's another good, again, I hesitate to say it with this band almost, but it is a good sing-along chorus. It's a real, uh, you know, powerful soaring chorus, um, which, you know, most of them aren't really. Most of them are much more sort of metally choruses, uh, you know, aggressive and sort of pounding. Whereas this one is much more, yeah, actually let's let things breathe a little bit. Uh, my favorite line in the song, I am a plague in an 18-wheeler. Get behind the wheel, I'm going to drive. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and that's the one. Uh, that is the drive that goes for 18 seconds. Holy I crap. Timed, I timed it. 18 seconds. Now, I assume that Artificially, he has some, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> some help from the effects department there. I... You know, I don't think, uh, and this is no disrespect to Rob Zombie, but I do not think he is the sort of vocalist who can hold a note for 18 seconds because there ain't many of them, frankly. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. I mean, that is a quite a long time. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I just wish I knew what the title was about. <laughs> El Phantasmo and the Chicken Run Blastorama. I mean, it just, it makes no fucking sense. But, no, I mean, I feel uh, like he good. has a, he has a hat full of titles like this written on pieces of paper and he just like pulls one out and it's like, you know what? That's the title of this one. And, and has no care to match, uh, actual Whether song lyrics, lyrics to, yeah, not yeah. none whatsoever. Like those, yeah. they're almost two separate things to him. Like they're completely like, why would the title have anything to do with the lyrics? Like, yeah. What are you crazy? Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, just giving okay. people another thing to ponder. The middle eight of this one has scratching in it yep. uh, as well. And I wondered, maybe this is the birth of new metal. <laughs> maybe this is where all those metal bands went, hey, we should get a turntablist. <laughs> well, and what uh, the guy that we just talked about, um, Terry Date, also worked with Limp Bizkit. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Like I mentioned, uh, Deftones, uh, Korn. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, all right, so move on to the penultimate track track 10 blur the technicolor like the sort of flangy voice boxy wah guitar effects that are going on in this song this is another like super groovy sort of riff i think but i i really like the 
guitar effects in this song. Yeah, it's I I agree. The riff, I think this is the most metal riff on the album. You know, it just in terms of take the riff out, nothing else, but just right. take the riff out and give that to a guitarist. Uh and I think it sounds the most like, oh, you know, you'd expect to hear this on a regular metal album. Yeah. Um I love the intro on this track. Those sort of Middle Eastern uh influences. Yes. It's almost like a teaser for the next track in a way. Yes. Uh, yep. Which I, I think which is, is a, much again, more sort of dreamy than you know, this this is like a groove city. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. But the way like that can't be a coincidence that like the first time in the entire album that you hear a sort of, you know, Eastern vibe is the track before you know, the intro to the track before the track that has that throughout right. the entire It's almost like thing. two halves of the same coin, right? And yeah, then yeah. Yeah, it's nice, I think, because it kind of, again, you know, bit of a teaser, builds anticipation. The uh, the guitars and drums, again, on this track, I think, work really well in sync. Agreed. Even though it's not a, a million miles an hour track, just really lock in. Um, and I love that the chorus is almost all guitar harmonics. There's almost no actual regular notes being played. <laughs> it's just Jay making harmonics yep. on the guitar. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, this is a track that I think, I think it's easy to overlook because it comes so soon after more human than human right. and because it is one of the slower tracks, but it's a track that grows on you. It certainly grew on me. I know when I first got this album, I kind of not, not didn't like this track, but it just kind of, yeah, whatever. Um, and then over the years, uh, you know, really sort of grew on me and has now become you know, a track that I look forward to hearing. Oh, I, I love the up. main riff in this song. I think it's awesome. Yeah. Well, and, and like I say, and the chorus as well is just, yeah, I don't know. Bit sleazy. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> bit kind of sassy. I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah. Sassy is a good word for it. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And then of course the final track, uh, track 11, blood, milk and sky. I remember the first time uh, the first time I played this, I saw the CD player show the time remaining because, you know, they do that or used to. Uh, 
And I thought, oh my God, they've made some kind of doom epic. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, th- and then you hear the opening and you're like, no, they really have. Oh my God, it's going to be some like 11 minute. And it's not, it's not. No. <laughs> but it's a shame. I wish it was. I could listen to this for 11 minutes. I really could. Um, I-, I love, again, the Middle Eastern sounds. Again, Zombie doing something different with his vocals. I do like, like that. I like that he's doing something different. And yeah. um, But I just don't know as the closer... I guess well, that's I think where it, I struggle with it. It, it. It's a bit like Night Prowler. It's it's a, one of those tracks where that's a great point. If it's not the closer, where on earth could you put it? Where that's else could this point. go on the album? Um, and I think that's the thing we always have to bear in mind is that yeah, it may not make you immediately want to flip the album or you know replay press a loop on the CD player or whatever. But where else would you put it? Well, and it uh, certainly gives you enough time to contemplate that. And true. <laughs> <laughs> with, with, with the length of the actual track. So, yes. uh, but you're, that is a, actually a perfect point is that where well, else would you have put it? You certainly can't lead with right. a song like this. And if you put it in the middle, you do risk it coming across as a dip. Yeah, um, exactly. You risk people skipping it precisely. Yep. But also the album would be poorer without it. You know, I, if it w- I agree with on that. The album, yeah. Yeah, if it wasn't on the album, I think it would be poorer for it. This has, over the years, this has become one of my favorite tracks on the album. Uh, I love the lyrics. I think these are some of his best lyrics. Uh, I love his vocals as well. Um, uh, one of the one of the lines on here actually is, uh, where is it? Kaleidoscope and Candle Eyes. And uh, Kaleidoscope such an appropriate lyric i think because so many of his lyrics feel like that they feel kaleidoscopic yes uh, like we were saying that's there's true. just so many different things in there um the rhythm of this has samples of chains clanking and glass breaking mixed in with the snare hits which i lo- just you really have to listen for it but it is there and it just gives it that extra little bit of you know uh, harsh sound um yeah for those of you listening to the multi-track version it's on track 57 of the 72 (laughs) (laughs) if you just want to highlight that track and listen to uh 57 is the chains and uh 61 actually is the breaking glass yeah and then you've got that singing the arabian singing and the sort of guitar as sitar melody As I say, this is over the years. This has become one of my favorite tracks because there's so much to it, and it's so again so well composed. You know, there's not a lot to it. It's not a complex track, but what there is is so well written and works so well for that atmosphere. You know, it feels like an arid, some kind of a, you know trip across the Sahara or something. Yeah. Um, it kind of gives you time to let the whole album as a whole sink in. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like as, as, as you're, because it's not, because it doesn't sort of, you know, come roaring to a stop with the last track of the album. Like it's not, it almost gives you time to contemplate the album while it's still playing. 
Yeah. Which might yeah, be, a, can... a, you know, as opposed to like the album just ended and now I'm thinking like, all right, what did I just listen to? And, and absorbing right. that, you know what I mean? Like it kind of starts that journey for you with the last song of the album sort of thing. Yeah, no, I can go along with that. Yeah. Um, and I mean, honestly, that whole bit at the end, like that's what I say. I could listen. If that went on for the whole length of the track, I would be absolutely fine with that. Yeah. Um, but instead, obviously, uh, we get the uh, the bullshit fake out silence uh, as everybody did back then on CDs. That was yep. what you did. Uh, I'm so glad that we're you know we don't get that anymore because it's kind of pointless with MP3s. Um, right, exactly. But what I find interesting is that when it fades back in, it's about eight minutes forty five. When it fades back in, it's not the same riff. It's similar, but it's not actually the same riff. Um. And then that plays out for a couple of minutes with uh, Jay Younger doing a guitar effect that feels, it, and maybe I'm sure this is just because of the imagery and lyrics associated with the album, but it feels like an engine grinding to a halt, uh, you know, amidst all this sort of cacophony of feedback yep. and noise. And then, yeah, it just feels like something kind of slowly you know, big truck grinding to a halt or something. Well, and the um, imagery that they've conjured in the past with like creature in the wheel uh, of the wheel no, and exactly. stuff like that, yeah. like this, the whole thing, like whatever this thing is just kind of slowing down and it's a, a juggernaut a be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Slowly coming to a halt. And yeah, absolutely. Like I say, I know that that imagery is there in my head because of the other lyrics on the album and stuff, yep. but nevertheless, that is what I think of. And yeah. And then it, it does come to a halt. Um, and that makes me sad because <laughs> it means there is no more white zombie. That's you know? true. That is uh, what it means. That that's the end of white zombie. Um, but also in a way glad because they absolutely went out on top. Right. How would um, they top that? Exactly. I mean, you know, we won't talk about the remix album that they released after yeah. this because that was very, very obviously, uh, you know, a Rob zombie passion thing that he just did without the involvement of the other band members. So forget about that. This is the last actual band White Zombie album. And yeah, like I say, they went out on top, no question. I had read in an interview, uh, I think it was a piece on Blabbermouth, but they, they were referencing an interview with Mitch Lathan where Sean had said of the breaking up of the band and what they thought was going to happen after this album, she said it was a bit of a slap in the face when she first found out that Rob was pursuing a solo career uh, after they split, she said, after a year, we were supposed to be taking a break, and then we were going to have a call to talk about getting back together and making a record. I knew we weren't getting back together, but literally, uh, you know, she said, she said, Jay and I both said, we have more riffs, we'd love to write some more music, and Rob kept saying, no, 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 I think we're done. And she's like, what are you going to say? You can't tell the singer that he has to sing. She said, mm. even though our our manager told Jay and I that we should go on and continue with White Zombie and get a new singer, we both refused that. But the slap in the face was that Rob's solo record came out like the next day. The next day. So he spent a year making a record knowing that White Zombie wasn't going to be a band again. And she said, so that was kind of a bummer. <laughs> she says, but you know what? Whatever. I don't care. I moved, I, I moved to New Orleans. I, you know... I yeah, she became that, a photographer. You know, she it? said, I knew that we'd already broken up anyways, but it, it sounds like they, that there was a bit of a leading on of, of, uh, or a, not necessarily a leading on, but a not 
Rob didn't not say to them, like, hey, we're not strength. getting back together because I'm actually working on a solo record right now. Yeah. It's kind of like, eh, I don't think we're going to get back together. And then, oh, here's a new solo record. Yeah, by the way. Right. Um, yeah, she moved to New Orleans and became a photographer, I believe, and quite a, a well-regarded photographer, by all accounts. Um, and Jay Younger kind of left, well, not left the business, but just sort of stopped playing. He's, to the best of my knowledge, he's not in any bands at the moment. Is Didn't, he a producer now? Well, this is the thing. He could have gone on. Let's face it. He could have gone on and joined many, many other bands. For and sure. He really has, has the chops to play in sort of more straight metal bands. But no, he exactly he became an engineer and producer. And he now specializes in mastering vinyl. He became, ironically, talking about the Loudness Wars on this CD, he became a mastering engineer and, uh, by all accounts, a very w- highly regarded one. It's a bit like the fella from Anthrax who went off to become a watchmaker. <laughs> oh, Dan <laughs> Spitz. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's like, what the fuck? Uh, yeah, he's apparently now a really well-regarded uh, vinyl mastering engineer because there just aren't many people left who know how to do that. And he decided to learn it. How bizarre. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so anyway, that is the end of uh, my only one great album theme uh, and the end of this volume. Yes. So there is no homework. Uh, you know, we may return with a a, a a surprise bonus track at could some happen. point in the near future could happen has been known to happen before um there's going to be 47 yeah. minutes of silence at the end of this episode so if you listen all the way to the end of that <laughs> you might get a bonus episode <laughs> oh god could you imagine if we actually did that the size of the mp3 file yeah um, that'll be the last episode we ever do we'll do something yeah. stupid like that at the end of it <laughs> Um, but yeah, this has been a great, uh, a great volume. We covered some really good albums on this volume and, uh, and I'm glad we got to talk about this one. This is definitely, uh, I'm glad we talked about white zombie and I'm glad it was this album. Yeah. Oh, this was always on my list. There was no question that this album was going to come up at some point on, you know, be one of my picks. It was just a question of when, uh, and so when, as I say, I decided to, have this kind of loose theme on this volume. It made sense to end with this one, I think, because it really is the kind of the epitome of you make one great album and then you split up and nobody ever does anything that good again. <laughs> right. Um, so thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through this rather long volume, actually. We've had quite a few episodes because of things like our encores and doing two listener choices and a couple of uh, backstage pass episodes and stuff, which we need to do more of those. Um so thank you for listening uh, out there. Let me just go through the spiel and remind you all, as I said, the Facebook group, if you want to join that and chat to us, is at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. You can also, of course, support the show directly on Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash thrash it out. And we ask you, uh, all of our patrons, we just ask for a minimum of $1 per episode. Uh, all episodes are always available for free to everyone, but the people who support us at Patreon really do help us out because we do have costs, you know, they're not huge, but we do have costs uh, for things like, you know, hosting and domain registration and, you know, hosting the MP3 files and all that sort of stuff. So we really appreciate people helping us out and showing their support for the show uh, so that we can cover all those costs and, uh, you know, get a little extra into the bargain. Always nice. We will be back at some point reasonably soon. I should think. Um, still got plenty of albums that we want to talk about. I now I have to think about, am I going to have a theme for the next volume or is it just whatever? I I already know I am. 
I'm not going to say what it is yet. Uh, actually, no, do you know, maybe I should. Maybe I should, because this is a good reason. Oh, for this is interesting. Facebook What's happening yeah. right now? Let's hear it. Yeah. <laughs> so I am well aware, nobody is more aware than me, that a lot of my picks for, I mean, you, you, you know, you made a point of it, this volume, but a lot of my picks throughout this whole show have been quite sort of nostalgic picks. You know, I've picked a lot of older albums, a lot of older bands, um, because that's you know, the stuff I grew up listening to, whatever. So for the next volume, I want to make a deliberate effort to cover newer bands and newer albums. Uh, I'm not saying that every single pick is going to be, you know, something brand new or whatever, but I really want to make an effort to listen to and cover on this show newer bands and newer albums. So if you're a listener to this show, you probably have a good idea by now of the sort of thing that I like or that might appeal to me, even if it's not something I would normally listen to. If you can think of something that fits that bill that you would like to recommend, uh, I'm, this isn't a case of like, I'm not taking suggestions per se, right? but you know, if you, uh, can think, oh, you know, you'd probably like this album. Why not give that a listen? Uh, go to the Facebook group or go to the website where you'll find that's thrashedoutpodcast.com where you'll find links to the email address for the show and our Twitter accounts and give me those recommendations. I want recommendations of newer bands, newer albums that, uh, I might enjoy and that I could cover in the next volume of this show. I could go along with that. There are definitely newer albums that I have sort of in my list that I haven't talked about yet, but would certainly like to. Um, and of course, I always have stuff that I can reach back to for back in the day. But that might be an interesting theme for the next volume is maybe so. sort of I mean, yeah, a newer... I, um, I, I still have lots of albums from the past that I would like to talk about. And like I say, I'm not saying that I won't cover any of those. Right. But I, I am very aware that the vast majority of stuff that I have picked for the show are quite old albums. Yeah. Interesting. So, I like yeah. it. Something to think about. Absolutely. And in the meantime, uh, yeah, as I say, we'll be back in a few months' time. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, keep thrashing. Yep. Take care, everyone. <laughs>